All right, now, normally we'd have walk-up music, so just pretend that I'm walking up here, and we'll get into the message. We are in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus the Servant Messiah. I love, I love the Gospel of Mark. Mark, Mark is, uh, is a dude after my own heart, and not a lot of words. You ever notice how if women get together, and I'm going to say this because it is a stereotype, but it's a true stereotype. You get women together, and they go to lunch. They come back, doesn't matter if it's a 10-minute lunch or a two-hour lunch, they come back and they could give you probably a two- or three-hour breakdown of everything that was discussed. Guys, me specifically, I can hang out with a good friend all day long, go home, and Pastor Gabe says, so what would you guys talk about? I don't know. Nothing. We hung out. We didn't talk about anything. You talked about nothing? That's how guys are. But maybe that's why... Mark speaks to me so much because Mark, man, he's not a lot of fluff. He just hits the high points and said, this happened. But his point in doing that is to illustrate the servanthood, the humanity of Jesus Christ. You can look at the gospel of Matthew if you want to know all about the Messiahship and the kingly lineage. Um, you know, different gospels have different aspects, but Mark is all just about Jesus did this and he served and he moved on. I love that about him. So where we are, if you missed any of them, go back to our website, discovercommunity.church again, or YouTube has it as well. You can click on and look at the archives and catch the older messages if you've missed any of them. But where we are, without going into too much of a recap, Jesus and his disciples are traveling around the Galilee region. They're doing ministry. They're, they're healing. They're driving out demons. They're basically causing a ruckus to the to the Pharisees and the powers that be, making it really uncomfortable for them to have to answer some of the questions that they're having to answer. Nobody likes having to answer difficult questions, especially ones that they can't. So they're getting kind of a reputation, and they're sort of being a thorn in the side. Last week, what we talked about at the end of chapter 5 of Mark was Jesus had just been traveling through, um, through the town to heal Jairus's daughter, and we find out that she passes away, and he literally resurrects her from the dead. And in the midst of that, oh yeah, by the way, this woman who had been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years, ruining her life, heals her at just a touch. That raises the ministry of Jesus to a new level. Now, he's done all kinds of things. There's been stories. People have seen things. But this resurrection of the synagogue leader's daughter, that raises things to a whole nother level. And it's going to make things difficult for Jesus to travel around and be incognito for any period of time. So he decides, all right, it's time to head out into the countryside. It's time for a change of scenery, maybe. Let's go do ministry somewhere else in the region around there. So what he does, he and his disciples... They head out, and they go back to where it all began. Okay, question, where did it all begin? Not all at once, take turns. It is a trick question. Some people would say, Garden of Eden. That's where it all began. That would be right. Bethlehem, where it all began. That would be right. But we're talking about Nazareth. We're talking about Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. Now, as we get into this message, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with somebody somebody that you care deeply about, and it didn't go like you hoped it would go. Maybe you got flatly rejected. Maybe they just said, 
Who are you to tell me? I know who you are. Who are you to tell me? That's the dynamic that we're going to talk about today. So Jesus and his disciples, they head out from the Galilee region, specifically probably they're hanging out in Capernaum, and they head out and they go back to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth, um, it's an easy day's walk. It's about, give or take, 20 miles. Fairly easy day's walk. 20 miles sounds like a lot to us, right? To them, it's not that big a deal. So they head out. Mark 6.1, our very first scripture. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. This hometown was Nazareth. It was a village of about 500 people or so. Fluctuated a little bit like they all do. Let me show you, those of you who kind of learn visually, here's a map of that region in the time of Jesus. So the lake is the Sea of Galilee, also known as Lake Tiberias. Okay, you see Capernaum kind of top left. You see Corazon, Bethsaida, um, all these towns. Here's Cana. Cana is where the first miracle happened, the turning the water into wine, remember? And then right below that, Nazareth. So Jesus and his disciples walk from the Capernaum area over to Nazareth. Now, Jerusalem, for context, is kind of down here off the map down here below. That's the region. Now, what it looked like, we have a photograph that's actually very close. This right here. I know the, the resolution isn't that great, but this is Nazareth in the 1800s. Okay, before all modern technology and things kicked in, it looked very much like that in Jesus' time. Now, Nazareth is still there, but there's telephone poles and cell phone towers and all that like anything else. But that's pretty close to what it looked like, just kind of this rural, not really much of anything sort of a town, but it's Jesus' hometown, and he cares about those people. Now, we're going to talk about today Jesus and his disciples going there for ministry, but it wasn't his first attempt at ministry in his hometown. Now, I'm not talking about Jesus preaching to people as he's growing up. He may have done that. What teenager or kid doesn't think they know everything, and they're going to let people know everything that they, they know, the sum of the wisdom they have collected. But it's more than that. Following Jesus' baptism, we know that happened down along the Jordan. That happened. Immediately after that, what happened? He went out into the wilderness for 40 days right, to contend with the devil, to be tempted, some say, with the devil in the wilderness. That's where he was. Now, when that was over, depending on the gospel you read, some of them skip over that part. Some of them really shine a light on it. Some of them don't. But the gospel of Luke talks a lot about what happened right there, and that's what we're going to visit here at the beginning here. So Luke 4, 14 and 15 says this, and Jesus returned to Galilee immediately after his baptism and temptation. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding region. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. An important thing to notice there, remember, Jesus is alone at this time. He's all by himself. He hasn't gone and collected his disciples yet. He's just alone traveling around doing ministry. The very next verse, verse 16 and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. A nice honor. It's always a nice honor to be asked to read from the Holy Scrolls during synagogue, but it wasn't anything earth-shattering. 
nothing super out of the ordinary, just a nice honor. But here's some important things to think in context to keep in mind of what's going on here. Jesus had only been gone for a few months, maybe six months, maybe a year if your math is really liberal. But it hasn't been that long since their hometown boy, Jesus, went away to do this. He left his job. He left his home. He left his family to walk about 60 miles down to the Jordan where he was baptized, okay? So that's what's happening here. It's about a three-day walk or so each way. Now, he returns home after all that. Again, short period of time. He returns home, and on the very next Sabbath, he goes to synagogue. Nothing new here. He would have done that all the time growing up from the minute he was an adult At 13 years old, he would have been going to synagogue. So very, very normal part of his life here. Still, nothing to see here, folks. Everything is normal. But here's what happens. Even though, really, they knew him as the son of Joseph, a carpenter. Joseph was a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. Worked for a living in their town. For a lot of years. In fact, he had just recently celebrated, I don't know if he celebrated or not, but had his 30th birthday. So he's 30 years old. He returns back. He's been working. He's been an adult for a long time in their community. No formal training as a rabbi. Okay? He didn't sit as a disciple of another well-known rabbi is how typically that worked. He was a carpenter. Right up until the minute that he walked down to be baptized in the Jordan, He was probably swinging a hammer and a punch in his shop. He wasn't, he was just Jesus. He was just one of their guys. He wasn't well known. Luke 4, 17 to 20 goes on. (coughs) Excuse me. And the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Again, typically this is how synagogue went. They would hand you the scroll, you would open it up, and you'd read a section of Scripture. So he's reading from the roll, and it's Isaiah. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The second half of verse 20, listen to this. And the eyes of all the people in the synagogue were intently directed at him. Why? Why do you think all the people in the synagogue eyes were intently directed at him? You study out that word intently, and it is, it is a piercing gaze. Okay? Why are they so focused on Jesus? Did he do such a fantastic job reading the scroll? They're like, bravo. I've never heard anyone read the scroll with such alacrity before. No, it's because, as it says here in verse 20, he sat down. Why is that such a big thing? I'll tell you why it's a big thing. There's only one chair in a synagogue, typically. That one chair was right next to the pulpit. You would stand at the pulpit and you would read from the Holy Scrolls, okay? Then there was a chair. Guess who sat in that chair? The high priest or the synagogue leader who was teaching. 
The teacher sat in that chair. The only one who sat in that chair was the priest or whoever was teaching. By Jesus sitting in that chair, that was, we'd call it a party foul today. Like, what? That is not your chair to sit in, and yet he sat down. That's why the gaze was on him. So he was already causing a little bit of a stir by sitting down in that chair. Now, that might have been forgiven, maybe, if it wasn't for what he said next. Luke 4.21, now he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, now we, with the benefit of hindsight and study, go, he was saying he was God. They weren't quite that quick on the uptake. Okay, Luke 4.22, and all the people were speaking well of him and admiring the gracious words which were coming from his lips. So they're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's good. He read from Isaiah. He said, okay, that's, that's very, isn't that good? That's very, and then somebody goes, wait a minute. Aren't you? And that's where we pick up here in the rest. Is this not Joseph's son? So after hearing him call himself a prophet, and then we know from another scripture that he chastised them for their unbelief and compared them to other people who had been punished by God for their unbelief, they had enough. Like, okay, not only are you sitting where you're not supposed to sit, but you come back out of nowhere claiming all kinds of authority, and you sit in the teacher's chair, and you start saying these things to us? Who are you? They thought they knew full well who he was. Luke 4, 28 to 30, And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage, as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and brought him to the crest of the hill on which their city had been built so that they could throw him off a cliff. Verse 30, but he passed through their midst and went on his way. They tried to kill him. Make no mistake, they weren't trying to just usher him out of town. They wanted to kill him for the blasphemy that he just committed in their synagogue. But he walks right through and walks away. So concludes Jesus' first attempt at ministry in his hometown. So if you have ever felt that your efforts to share the gospel with family members or in any situation didn't go over like you'd hoped it would, you're in good company. Because it didn't go well for Jesus here either. Now, fast forward to our section of scripture for today. It's about a year a year and a half after this event. Jesus had, now he had his disciples traveling around the Galilee, performing miracles, building quite a reputation, a lot of notoriety, both good and bad. He returns back again to Nazareth. Why did he go back there? Have you ever thought of that? Why did he go back to the place that basically tried to kill him? Not basically, they did try to kill him, but run him out of town. Why did he go back and give it another shot? It certainly wasn't because it was the biggest platform, tiny little village tucked in the way of nowhere with a not a stellar reputation, by the way. He'd already been rejected. His mother and his brothers didn't even live there anymore. That was his growing up, his hometown. His mother and brothers didn't even live there anymore. Now, he had some married sisters or sisters who were married, and they still live there. So he had a family presence there. But 
quick side note here, just for understanding, sometime after the baptism of Jesus and probably after he was rejected and they tried to kill him, he decides he's going to move his family as, as the eldest son. He was the head of the household, and it would have been his responsibility to decide we're moving. And he moves his mother and his brothers, and they move. They move to Capernaum. We know that from Matthew, Matthew 4, 12, and 13. Now, when Jesus heard that John, it's John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. That actually, if those of you who want to read Isaiah 9, that fulfills a prophecy, little-known prophecy in Isaiah 9. That, that, that exactly is going to do that. Where it says, leaving Nazareth, he came and settled. That means he moved. His mom, his family, everybody, they all moved down to Capernaum. Let's get out of Nazareth. They just tried to kill me. Now, returning back there, Jesus and his disciples probably stayed with one of his sisters and, and their family, most likely. They kind of went in. They didn't sneak in, but they arrived kind of keeping it quiet, went in, and they stayed. What we do know is that when Sabbath rolled around, and maybe it was a day or two or three, a couple days, came back around, Mark 6, 2, and when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man learn these things? And what is this wisdom that's been given to him? And such miracles as performed by his hands. See, so he had a little bit more credibility now because he actually came with a proper gang of disciples with him. He had some credibility from the stories they were hearing around the Galilee. Now, none of these miracles they're hearing about were performed in Nazareth, but they had heard the stories. And so he had a little bit of credibility, but still no formal training that they knew of. Where did he get all this wisdom? How did our Jesus become this? It says they were astonished because this is the Jesus that we knew growing up. This is Jesus the carpenter, the son of Joseph. We knew him. That word astonished, by the way, in the Greek is ekpleso. And it means to strike out of one's senses or to gape speechlessly. Here's an image of what that looks like. It probably didn't look exactly like that for those of you who are like, that's not how it went. But that's the dynamic struck out of his senses. They're like gobsmacked. Are you kidding me? He's speaking all these things, but who is this guy? We know this guy. What they hear him speak and what they've witnessed with their eyes and what they've heard from around the region there wasn't enough to overcome their inherent disbelief in somebody that they knew. We know this guy. Mark 6, 3. <clears throat> Excuse me, they say, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, <clears throat> and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are his sisters not here with us? That's how we know the married sisters stay behind. And they took offense at him. That's in some ways, that's natural. Jesus was a carpenter, which means some of these people here in this town, he made a living as a carpenter. So some of these people had ox carts and maybe plows, maybe a, maybe a dining room table, maybe a chair that Jesus the carpenter made. Can you imagine being one of those guys? And this was only a year ago that he was just working in his carpentry shop, and now 
He's proclaiming all these things. Some of these people, who knows if Jesus was a good carpenter or not? Maybe he was the carpenter son of God and everything was perfect, but maybe not. He was all human. And he was living that human life, which means failures, which means building an ox cart and missing the nail and hitting his thumb with a hammer. If you're a carpenter, you know what that is. Jesus did things like that. Maybe somebody in that crowd had an ox cart that the wheel had fallen off, and he's like, yeah, when that Jesus comes back, he's going to do some warranty work on my ox cart. Maybe. We don't know that for sure. But it's a dynamic that could easily have happened, and it made it hard for them to look at that guy as the same guy. And so they had a hard time with that. So Mark 6, 4, Jesus' response back to them after their question, after their offense, Jesus says to them, a prophet is not, is not dishonored except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. It's actually the same words that he spoke the first time they ran him out of town, tried to throw him off the cliff. There's a term, familiarity breeds contempt. You ever heard that term? It's a common term. Actually, it was even a common term in Jesus' time. Aristotle said that in about 600 B.C. So it was a well-known phrase already, but what it means is the better you know someone, the harder it is to overlook their flaws of who they are. I said this last service, (laughs) and I'll say it again because it strikes me every single day. I talked to Pastor Gabe after teaching a service. She knows what I'm going to preach on. She knows kind of some of the highlights But I'll talk to her and she'll go, I took three pages of notes. That was a great message. I learned so much from that. Like, really? It still surprises me that she's able to receive from that because she knows me. She knows how I woke up this morning and how goofy I was before I had my coffee or grumpy depending on the day. She knows me so well and yet is able to set that aside and actually receive. That's hard to do. Isn't it hard to do? Have you ever had somebody that you know? I per, Again, bringing it back to just a story I know, I was born and raised basically a, an auto mechanic. That's what I spent most of my life doing. And then I have friends from that life who find out that I'm a pastor now. And they go, really? You know, you ever seen the dog cock their head to the side? Ever been in an auto shop and know how mechanics talk? Okay. That was me for most of my life. Thank goodness that when you come to the Lord, he renews you. You are literally a renewed being. But it's so hard for people to disconnect from what they know about you to the words that are coming out of your mouth. It's so hard. And these people are struggling. So it's easy to judge them. But it's so normal. It's so human in the dynamic, the way that works. But unfortunately for these guys, they're... Their refusal to look beyond what they knew in their head and what they'd seen in their past about Jesus, their refusal and inability to look past that resulted in the absence of the miraculous in their midst. God could have, Jesus could have worked mighty things in their midst, but because of their unbelief, not much happened. Now, Scripture says this, Mark 6, 5, and he could not do any miracles there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Well, if you were one of those sick people, that was kind of a big deal, right? But that says he couldn't do any miracles. Matthew, in his gospel, Matthew 13, clarifies and says he couldn't do many 
miracles there. But imagine what was in store for them. If they would have received their son returned home as the Messiah, can you imagine what he would have done in their midst? But he couldn't. And it's not because somehow he was limited in his power. We'll get to that here in just a minute. Mark 6, 6, and he was amazed at their unbelief, and he was going around the villages teaching. That scripture, if you think about it, shows such humanity in Jesus. Think about this. The use of the word amazed at their unbelief. Would an omniscient God ever be surprised at the way something turned out? No. Since Jesus is God, that also means that Jesus knows everything and is omniscient as well. Talk about a mind grenade. That's what my kids say. It's a mind grenade that we talked about actually in our Friday night uh, gathering that we had here to watch The Chosen. At what point does Jesus' um, deity intersect with his humanity when he's walking around on earth? This says that he was amazed at their unbelief versus... An omniscient God would have just said, I knew you were going to say that. Jesus doesn't do that. He was actually amazed at their unbelief. Another message for another day, but something for you just to think about. This 100% all God, but all man, where does that intersection happen? And at what point when Jesus is walking along the path, does he look at the things and say, there's the cross I'm going to be crucified on. There's Judas coming to be one of my disciples who I know is going to betray me. At what point do those things intersect? It's so much to think about. But let's move on with our message here. It's time now. Jesus heads out into the countryside to do ministry in other villages, leaving Nazareth behind. And he decides that it's time to send the disciples out on their own. Okay, so he sends the disciples out on their own. Now, the question that I have in my mind Why do you think he did this now instead of just waiting for Pentecost, which was not far down the road, when they would all be empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and do ministry? Why did he do it then? Some scholars believe this, and and honestly, I'm not sure, but it sounds plausible. Some scholars believe that Jesus knew that the surrounding villages also knew of Jesus and also would have had those prejudices against anybody from Nazareth. And so Jesus of Nazareth, preaching in his own region, would not have been able to have the effect to change hearts the way that he wanted to. So he empowered his disciples to go out and do it in his place. I believe that is exactly why it happened. We don't know for sure. But Mark 6, 7 says, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs sent them out two by two in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Matthew 10 adds this detail that they're also to heal every disease and every sickness. In theological studies, that event is called a limited commission. He gave them a commission for a specific reason, a specific time, gave them specific power to do that and sent them out with his authority to accomplish that specific commission. We'll talk more about that in a little bit, but just remember that, especially if you want to sound smart at a party. Oh, that was the limited commission. Matthew also in his gospel, Matthew 10, adds a little bit. Read Matthew 10 if you want more expanding on what happens here. 
But he also adds, Matthew adds, that the instructions from Jesus to go out are also that they're not to preach to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans. So it's actually bypass them. Your focus, he gives them, is to the lost sheep of Israel. That's who I want you to reach. Now, how typical of Matthew that Matthew would say that, but Mark would not. Mark wrote his gospel, remember, for a Gentile audience. You wouldn't say, yes, the Messiah said, ignore you and go for them. So he just leaves out that detail. But that's why it's written the way that it's written. Now, this was a trial mission for a specific purpose. Now, it wasn't done as an audition to see who among you has the ability to go out and preach and spread the gospel. It wasn't done um, just for show or to show if they were ready or not. What it was was specifically then to not only to minister to the lost sheep of Israel, give them another opportunity, but also, as we'll see in the instructions he gives here, to show the people that they were dependent on Jesus for provision, for power, for teaching, for all those things. Mark 6, 8, and 9 says, and he instructed them. These are the instructions as they go out two by two. He instructed them that they were to take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not wear two tunics. So now think about this. These guys, Jesus was from around there. These guys weren't. They didn't know people. They weren't likely to bump into people they knew. They were going to be 100% dependent on the goodwill and the hospitality of strangers that they met, strangers that they were trying to share a very difficult gospel with. They were going to be 100% dependent. The idea of wearing sandals and, and not two tunics, that was so that they would be very humble in their appearance. He didn't want any reception, any favor that the disciples found. He didn't want that to be because they arrived at town looking like some well-to-do dignitaries. It's like, no, one tunic, don't pack anything extra. Just take what's on your back. Don't bring any food, no bag to carry it in, no money, but go. That is trust, going into a countryside that you don't know to share a gospel that they may not want to hear and be reliant on their favor. So that's what happens. Now, Matthew 6.10 says, And he said to them, like, oh, by the way, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. You ever read that section and gone, what's up with that? Like, why is that a thing? Mostly, what I had done in the past is just gone, okay, skip over it and move on. There's more to that, though. It's not earth-shattering theology, but there's a reason that it's there. Hebrew etiquette at the time, still, but especially at the time, was whenever a traveler came to a new village, the first person, first family that they met would then be, by etiquette, required to, to house them, to put them up, to offer them hospitality. Now, if they stayed multiple days, then that person would move to the next family and the next house and the next family, okay? So in a in, depending on the size of the village, there may be five, six, seven different families that are waiting in line. Now, what would happen if Jesus came to your home with his disciples? 
you would put him up, hospitality, you would invite him in, you would welcome him in. And then he said, yeah, we were over at the Smith's house down the block, and, uh, and they fed us chicken. You go, we're feeding you steak. And then you go to the next house, well, they fed us steak, we're feeding you lobster. Okay? What they didn't want, what Jesus specifically didn't want, was any sort of arguments, jealousy, one-upsmanship, competition, any of that stuff to distract from the message that they were trying to share. Each neighbor trying to beat the last. So he says, just go in, find one house, stay there until it's time to leave. But then he goes on, one last instruction, Mark 6, 11. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. In other words, he's saying, if they won't listen to you, if they won't receive you, just walk out, shake the dust off your feet, shake it off, as we would say, and move on, okay? I came up with a term for that. It's holy ghosting. Let that simmer. It'll, it'll be funnier as, it, as we go along. The story here, if Jesus could have difficulty, and this is why I think, this is, I think, the heart of why Jesus sent his disciples out like this, two by two. Because if sharing the gospel could be difficult for Jesus in his own hometown, they should expect the same. And they shouldn't be surprised when they find that. So I think a large part of this, sure, they were, they were received in some places, not in others. But he gave them very specific instructions, not on the off chance they don't listen to you. He knew they would be rejected soundly in many of these places. And if it could happen to Jesus, why should we be surprised when it happens to us? We try and share the gospel. The hardest people in the world for me to share the gospel with is my own children. It shouldn't be, but it is because they know me. They remember the things that I did wrong, the mistakes that I made, things I said that I shouldn't have said. They know all that. So do close family members. The closer people are to you, the more they know those things and the harder it can be. We shouldn't be surprised by that. So again, the disciples head out into the countryside in Mark 6.12. They went out and preached that people are to repent. Straightforward message. They didn't have any seminary training either. Go out and just tell them to repent. Mark, Mark 6.13. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. The power of Christ in preaching the repentance, healing, driving out demons. These disciples were empowered to do that. So obviously they had some success, right? Now, let's go into the conclusion here. There's so many takeaways. So many takeaways from this section. Spoiler alert, the rest of Mark 6, which we'll teach on in the coming months or coming weeks, um, has many more such great takeaways. But I'm going to show you a few that we get out of this section that we can apply to our lives right here in number, you know, today. First, probably the most important, don't judge somebody based on who they once were. How often do we do that? We are promised in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new person is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Thank God and hallelujah that that's true. But how many times do we say, okay, I received that. I'm a new creation in Christ. 
But I don't know if you are. I don't know if they are. And so we refuse to listen sometimes. We refuse to receive a blessing that could come our way because we don't know or don't trust the source of it. Mm, That happens all the time. And these people, simply because Jesus was from Nazareth, knew too much about him. Second, it will not always be easy to share the gospel. Okay, that was a pretty easy one to pick out there, right? Some people will hear it and receive it. Some people will hear it and ignore it. Some people will hear it and try to throw you off a cliff. It happened to Jesus. Why not to us? There's a section that I like in, in Acts, Acts 5, 40, 41. This is after the disciples have been out preaching They followed his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. Verse 41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Let me ask you, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you if you go out and you share the gospel in Jesus' name to someone who is not receptive to it. You get mocked. You might get ostracized. You're not invited to the reindeer games anymore. Um, What's the worst that could happen? They make fun of you? These guys were flogged, flogged and ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they rejoiced because they were worthy of suffering shame for him. That's a hard thing to do. There's no words that I could tell you, that I could teach you, that you would say, absolutely. I not only will rejoice in it, but I'm going to go seek out situations where I will get, where I will be flogged and beaten and ridiculed and mocked and ostracized for sharing the name of Jesus. And I'm going to be happy about it. That's something the Holy Spirit has to work in you but you have to be bold enough to put yourself in that situation to see it work. Third, a person's skepticism does not limit Jesus' power, okay? Jesus, it says Jesus could perform not many miracles or couldn't perform any miracles. That was not because his power was limited by their unbelief. Okay, had a good friend point out to me the clausometer from the movie Elf. Who knows the movie Elf? Remember the clausometer? Okay, the sleigh can't get off the ground because our clausometer is down here. They don't believe in you enough, Santa. If only we can get that clausometer up, then we can have the power to go. Jesus is not Santa Claus, and he is not reliant on the clausometer to be able to do his miracles. But what it can do, skepticism and unbelief can hinder the receptiveness of those who might otherwise come to him. I have had times where we are praying healing. We are praying deliverance over someone. The person we're praying over is receiving it. Somebody next to them says something out loud or acts in skepticism. And what it does is it snaps that person out of the place. Maybe he's right. Maybe I can't be healed. And it snaps, and it doesn't limit Jesus' power. It limits the person's ability to receive it. We see that in Scripture. John 6.60. 60. 
This is after, this is the disciples of Jesus Christ after hearing Jesus teach that you must eat my body and drink my blood. This is John 6.60. So then many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this statement is very unpleasant. Who can listen to it? Understatement of the century there, right? And then John 6.66. As a result of this, many of his disciples left and would no longer walk with him. They had walked with him. They had heard him teaching. They had seen the miracles. They believed it. And then when it came to this one part, many of the disciples are saying, "Mm, I don't know about that. And many walked away. The enemy loves that. The enemy would love nothing more than when Jesus is in the miracle, in the middle of working a miracle in your midst. The people, the body of Christ is in the middle of performing the miraculous right in front of your eyes. The enemy loves to latch on to any little bit of skepticism or disbelief and just blow that up. Yeah, you're right. Have you ever been in the middle of prayer, powerful prayer, cracked an eye open and seen somebody watching you? And you're like, oh, I need to act a little more dignified then because they're watching me receive prayer. The enemy loves to latch onto those things and blow them up in your mind. All right, the last thing here. (coughs) Nothing done in the name of Jesus will ever, ever go to waste in the kingdom of God. Never. It will never go to waste. How does that work? Here's a quick example from our section today. First of all, he sent the disciples out. Jesus did. Sent them out to offer citizenship in the kingdom of heaven to people that he knew would be reluctant. And he knew that they would probably reject it. And it's easy to feel superior to those people who rejected it. But think about this. What if the truth is that we as Gentiles, most of us, only have the opportunity to be grafted into that vine and to receive the gospel of Jesus because the nation of Israel rejected it. Ever think about that? Nothing ever goes to waste. We may only have the opportunity to know Jesus because the nation of Israel rejected him. Now, we talked about the limited commission, this limited commission that Jesus empowered the disciples to perform was a foreshadow of what we know as the Great Commission. So empowered by the Holy Spirit, given to believers at the time of Pentecost, and now through confession in faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. And you also receive then your walking orders, the Great Commission. Go and share the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. That's what we're given that, given the Great Commission for that. And like these disciples that we read about here, there's going to be people who will receive it, those people who won't. And we read where Jesus instructs his disciples to shake the dust off their feet and walk on. And it's easy to apply that rule to life today. I hear that thrown around way too casually. They didn't want to hear what you had to say. Shake the dust off your feet and walk on. We need to understand that that was given, that instruction was given to people who were sharing a gospel with people who Jesus knew were going to be reluctant, and many of them would reject it. But 
Here's the problem. When we take one thing that happens in Scripture and we apply that to our theology for the whole, our whole Christian walk, that can be a problem. I have a post-it note on my desk that says, narrative does not equal normative. Meaning just because it happened that way once doesn't mean it's going to happen that way every time. I know for a fact Jesus does not like formulas. And as soon as you think you have a formula, he's like, "Mm, that's not how it works. Time after time. And we need to understand that. So Jesus knew that they would reject him here more often than not, try to kill him maybe in his own hometown. Didn't stop him from trying again and trying again and trying again. So before we decide to just shake the dust off our feet and move on from someone who's reluctant or skeptical in hearing the gospel of Jesus, we need to understand what his ultimate desire was. The ultimate desire of Jesus, the one that he gave himself on the cross for. It's summed up in these two scriptures. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Jesus gave himself on the cross so that all would have the opportunity to come to repentance. Let's be careful when we apply shaking the dust off of our feet and moving on to a situation where the Holy Spirit hasn't told us to do that. We have the Holy Spirit, and we have the ability to ask that question. And I bet you'd be surprised. Some of the more difficult people in your life, the Holy Spirit is not going to release you from your obligation to share the gospel with them. That's not for me to say. That's for the Holy Spirit. But it is for you to seek him. So let's do that together. Let's pray. Father God, I I pray, first of all, I repent of those times where I've decided in my own pride that someone was too difficult and therefore I needed to move on. Father, help me to see those people the way that you see them, as your children, as, as the very people that you sent your son to die on the cross for. Help me to have your heart for everyone that I come across. And Lord, if there's somebody that I should bypass, if there's somebody that I should move on from, Lord, show me that. Let it be in your guidance. Let it be from the Holy Spirit and not from my own wisdom. So Lord, walk me. I pray. I hope we would all pray this together. Lord, I pray that you send me into those situations where someone needs to hear of your son, Jesus. And let us have the boldness given by the Holy Spirit. Let us us have the words and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to share the gospel in the way that they will receive it. Not in the way we've always done it. Not in the way it worked last time. But the way that you and only you know that will penetrate their heart. Lord, give us those words. Give us that introduction. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move into communion now. We have prayer team in the back. Look for somebody with a lanyard. We have this new kind of uh, 
sound wall back there, because I know it can be hard to hear sometimes, but if you need prayer, go back there. You don't have to stay there, but it can be for some privacy, it can be for some quiet, but find someone to pray with you, or maybe you just turn to the person next to you and pray with them. But let's use that power, the power of prayer that can help us navigate a life that is so difficult otherwise. On our own, we can never do it. Opportunity to not only pray yourself, but have someone to stand alongside you and agree with you in prayer. Take advantage of that. And then through communion, we have at the crosses, you can serve yourself. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we are commanded to take communion every time we get together. It's not an option. And the reason for that is because every time we take communion together, we declare yes and amen to what Jesus empowered us to do and the mission he gave us do it in thankfulness. So at the crosses, you can serve yourself. Gabe and I will be up here and we'll serve you. We have wine up here and there's juice at the crosses. Maybe you just sit in your chair and just reflect. Have the Holy Spirit. Be bold enough to ask the Holy Spirit, who's somebody I've given up on that you want me to go back and revisit with the gospel of who you are? Be bold enough to pray that. Thank you guys.